Let me read to you from the Gospel of John. John chapter 11. This is uh, quite a lot of text, but it's an exciting story. Uh, Stay with me. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and his sister, her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was one uh, it was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, Lazarus is sick. And when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going to go back. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by the world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought that he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. Let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews who had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in their loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the son of God, who is come into the world. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that you may believe that that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and his feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. But Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. 
This is the word of the Lord. So we are concluding our series um, uh, on the I am statements of Jesus. Seven great statements that Jesus makes about himself in the Gospel of John. And actually, this isn't the last statement, but we've saved it for today for obvious reasons. Why? Because it looks forward to Jesus' resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life, says Jesus. Uh, It is in this moment when Jesus, knowing his uh, friend Lazarus um, is ill uh, and dying and dead, and his friends Mary and Martha are in deep grief, that he goes back into a place of danger, um, a place that was a kind of known area of risk for him. Um, and it kicks off the circumstances that begin to gather for Jesus' own resurrection. But before he gets to his resurrection, of course, there is his own arrest, his own suffering, and his own uh, crucifixion. So people say about this event that it is the gospel in miniature. It's like, it's like a little compact story that tells the story of the whole gospel. That Jesus is risking his life to go to his friend. And there are lots of puzzles about this particular story. uh, And you don't need me to kind of flag them to you. But why did Jesus wait? Why did he wait two days and then decide to go? We don't know. There's a lot of pathos in it. There's a lot of pain in it. There's Mary and Martha's grief. It's their pain. And there's Jesus' own tears, his pain. But he does say, the one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And it is that which we're going to look at today. Becca, I wonder if you flick over to the next slide. This is a picture of a woman called Zhang Zisung. A woman from South Korea who lost lost her seven-year-old daughter, Neon, uh, to cancer in 2016. This is a still from a documentary that was made four years later. And four years later, Zhang meets Neon again. At least she meets a virtual reality avatar of Neon. The Munwa Broadcasting Corporation had invited Yang and her family to be part of the documentary, which is called Meeting You. The central moment of which sees the mother don a VR headset and interact with her daughter. The result, if you go onto YouTube and watch the clip, is simultaneously gut-wrenchingly sad and a little bit creepy. Zhang, the mother, is weeping. Uh, She reaches out to try and touch Neon's face, but of course, Neon isn't there. And she asks her how she's been, and she says how much she's missed her. And the avatar kind of speaks out these scripted, pre-programmed sentences. They don't seem to diminish Yang's sense that her daughter is really there and they are really reunited. What do we do about death? What do we do about the fact of death? Which, although in this circumstance, is particularly tragic. A seven-year-old daughter and a grieving mother. It is nevertheless a reality that faces us all. In 2005, a long time ago now, the BBC conducted some polling. It was called What the World Thinks of God. And they polled 10,000 people across 10 countries, and they were asked about their religious beliefs. UK, Israel, India, USA, South Korea, Indonesia, Nigeria, Russia, Mexico, the Lebanon. 
One of the statements which they polled was, I find it hard to believe in God when there is so much suffering in the world. Uh, Across the world, 24% agreed with that statement and 71% disagreed. Um, One polled at 2%, 2% agreeing with that statement. And that was uh, the Lebanon, where only 2% agreed with the statement, I find it hard to believe in God when there is so much suffering in the world. One polled at 52%, and that was the highest, and that was the UK. It's almost like the better that life gets, the angrier we are, because we still sense deep down that there is some wrongness about creation. There's some fault, there's some bug in the system. The philosopher Nietzsche uh, once said, I can't pronounce it in German, but... um, The phrase is, all lust wants eternity, all desire wants eternity. Less cynically, we could say, and about this story like Yang's story, is that all love wants eternity. And a death is not just the end of one creature's biological uh, existence. If it were just that, and we just felt like that about it, we could be indifferent about it. But a death is an end to the world of meaning that an individual has built with others. It doesn't matter how long a life has been, uh, it's just never enough. And when someone dies, we encounter that sense of the fault, the error, the bug in the system. But of course, we have the story of the resurrection. A bishop of the Church of England about 40 years ago, David Jenkins, a controversial bishop, called the resurrection a conjuring trick with bones. But it's not that. But what we do know is that the resurrection is a very, very strange thing indeed. And we have to ask the question, does it really offer us any hope? Because even if Jesus somehow did come back from the dead, then how does that help us? But we also need to see that it's part of a long story of scripture, of which the most important theme, perhaps the most important theme, is death and life. And we have to go back to the foundational events of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 to see that framework from which all the other stories spin out. Human beings are created, they live with God in a garden of life. And in that garden, there are two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And these two trees, they represent a choice. And a choice between continuing to live in the garden, continuing to live in that place of life, A choice between that and between forging our own way, insisting that we know what is best. And Adam and Eve, of course, choose to forge their own way. And as a result, they are exiled from the garden into a realm of death. And when God, as it were, pronounces his judgment over them, he says these words which resonate through the season of Lent. From dust you came, and to dust you will return. Adam and Eve are made from the dust. And then he says, now you've, you've made a choice, and it means that you will return to dust. And your fundamental reality is one of mortality. And not only that, they're exiled from the garden, and a barrier is placed between humans and God. And a barrier between humans and that place of life. And of course, in the, in the story, that's kind of, 
famously, well, not famously, sorry, mythically depicted by a cherubim wielding a fiery sword at a gate to the garden, the east gate to the garden. It's guarded. The way into life, the way into God's presence is guarded. And that is, that is the kind of foundational story from which all the scriptures kind of spin out. And which attempts to explain the condition that we're in and attempts to explain that sense of which there is just a bug in creation. There is some wrongness, there is some injustice, there is some fault that must be dealt with. And we may feel aggrieved that whatever or whoever Adam and Eve were, that they had made their rejection of life and that we are caught up in that. But the truth is, I think that we know every day that we would make the same decision. We would, if we were in their place, choose to forge our own path. We would, in the choice between surrendering to our creator and relying on our own autonomy, we would choose our way. If we, uh, the religious amongst us, may say, no, 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 I would choose surrender. I would know that God's will was the right way. I would know that. But in practice, if you're ever challenged to give up something that you love, if you're ever challenged to make a decision against the thing which you want, and I've made this decision many times myself, I remember consciously saying to God, when I knew I was doing something he didn't want me to do, no, I'm going to do this thing. Our own little acts of rebellion are part of their acts of rebellion. So that's the frame, and that's the place, that's the story into which Jesus speaks and says, I am the resurrection and the life. Right into the heart of this ancient and foundational problem. We know that there is something we lack. We know that there is a blessing that we're locked out of. We know that we are mortal. Is there a way back into the garden? Is there a way back into the life of God? Elsewhere in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And whatever is in our mind when we say full life, I mean, it's, I, I've, got, I've got an image of kind of like lazing on a beach and, you know, jumping on a water ski every now and again and sort of just, yeah, sipping on a pina colada. Uh, but that is, not, that is not what Jesus, that is obviously not what Jesus means when he says, I've come that you may have life and have it to, you, to the full. He's saying that there is a way back into the place of life, that there is a way back into the presence of our creator. What is that way? Jesus' journey to Bethany, for the sake of Lazarus and Mary and Martha, put him at risk. Word gets out. A meeting is called. Something has to be done. Let, Let me read to you a few verses beyond what I had read at the beginning of the talk. Uh, at this meeting of, of, of the kind of uh, Judean leaders. They say, what are we accomplishing? They asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Interestingly, evoking the political context, they were scared of a kind of stirring rebellion. 
Of course, we know that that is not what Jesus was into. That was not what he came for. But there are other things that are here uh, as well that we need to pay attention to. Uh, Here, this man is performing many signs. And of course, signs are a thing of importance in John. Um, Seven signs. Raising Lazarus was the last sign. And a sign points to something. That's what a sign is for. When you see a sign, it's never the thing you want to, you know, it's kind of Woolwich, five miles this way. It's the place you want to get to. So what is Lazarus, Lazarus's raising a sign of? When clearly what happens to Lazarus is different from what happens to Jesus. It's a resuscitation, not a resurrection, at least not in the sense of Jesus' resurrection. But it is and points to the fact that Jesus has the power of life. And Jesus wants everybody there to know this. Jesus prays publicly, thank, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I say this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. That they may believe, Jesus is saying, that he's been sent by the Father to provide humanity with a way back into life with a way back into the garden. How, how is this going to happen? And strangely, we learn it from the mouth of Caiaphas, the high priest who's at that meeting. Let me read to you again. John eleven forty nine. One of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You people know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people, then the whole nation perish. This is an incredible moment. Because in that gathering, they're all, what should we do about this guy? What should we do about this guy, Jesus? If he carries on stirring people up, then the Romans are going to come and kick it all over. And Caiaphas, the high priest, says, it is better for this man to die than for the whole nation to come under judgment. But then... Reading again, he did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and to make them one. And John is kind of speaking into that moment and saying, he didn't know what he was saying. He didn't even realize what he was saying. One man won't have to die for the sake of the nation. In other words, there would have to be a sacrifice. In the, in the Jewish Day of Atonement, a goat would be taken and sacrificed to cover the sins of the nation. That's not what Caiaphas means here. He's not thinking about a sacrificial death in that sense. But it's a Freudian slip, if you like. John is saying, accidentally, without choosing to, he prophesied. He didn't, he, didn't, he didn't really say what he meant to, but he said what God meant him to say. A sacrifice to bring the people back into the place of life. Um, you do know, don't you, that uh, the Jewish temple at the time uh, could not be entered except in one, for one day of the year. And that was the day of atonement when the high priest would offer the sacrifice for the people. And you do know that the temple was like a picture of Eden. It is like a picture of the garden and that the temple itself was full of imagery and kind of uh, ornaments and symbolism of the garden. So to get back into the, to get into God's presence, to get into, get back into this kind of symbolic garden, a sacrifice had to be given. 
because the way to the garden is guarded, because there's this cherubim bearing a sword, because to go back into that place without forgiveness, without restoration, without, without something happening is to experience death. So a death has to be given, a sacrifice has to be given if anybody was to go into that space. Somebody has to be there to take the strike of the sword. Which is a picture, of course, of Jesus' own death. But a different kind of death, a different kind of sacrifice, a sacrifice to end all the sacrifice, because this was God's perfect sacrifice for sin. It's often said, isn't it, and one of the Gospels mentioned that when Jesus died, that the veil uh, covering the temple was torn in two. Um, and we think, well, okay, the way is open. But do you know that the veil was embroidered with a picture of the cherubim and the sword? And when the veil is torn in two, <laughs> that's, it's, not just a, it's not just, oh, we can all go in now. It's that the, the way that was guarded is now open. Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. The sacrifice that sheds his blood. But because he has the power of life, death cannot overcome him. In John, in the, mo- the morning of the resurrection, we read a story. Jesus meets Mary, and she mistakes him for what? She mistakes him for a gardener. A kepuros is the Greek. That Greek word, kepuros, it's a compound of two words, the word for garden and the word for watcher. Or guard. He is the keeper of the garden. That symbolic cherubim with the fiery sword is now gone, and in his place stands Jesus. All the I am statements come into a new focus. I am the way, the truth, and the life, said Jesus. I am the gate, said Jesus. I am the resurrection and the life. And just as the stone is removed, so the way is open. We can come into the place of life. Or we can choose to stay outside. What does it take? Just believing. This is the the incredible thing. There is nothing we can do except believe. Jesus says, believe in God, believe also in me. And what does he mean? Does he mean you've got to have all of Christian theology in your head and agree with every bit of it? Not at all. Just that you have to trust that he died to open the way into life. The chances are you, might, you already know this. You already know all this stuff. And you've sat in church on an Easter Sunday morning Dozens of occasions, and you've heard it all before. We do need to remember, though. We need to hear the good news again, and we need to give ourselves to it again. The chances are, as much as you know this in your head, that in your heart, 
you were holding on to a different way of life, a different way of securing your own life, of defending your own life, of maintaining your own life. Like this tragic picture of a mother with her daughter trying to break the power of death through technology. But is it really her daughter? No, it's not her daughter. Because technology doesn't hold the power of life and death. And whatever way we are holding on to our life, we have to ask ourselves, is it real life? Is it full life? Is it abundant life? Or is it a kind of virtual reality life? A life that can exist for a moment, but is intangible. It can't be touched. When the power goes off, the lights go dark. But just by believing, just by saying, yes, I believe that this happened. And maybe sometimes even, I'm not sure if I can believe in this, but I want to believe in this. That the way to life is opened again. Then it can be ours.